passage comes from Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their mother or father. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, those of you who are here before Christmas recall that we were looking at the Gospel of Mark, and so you can see we're back uh, in the Gospel, looking at the story of Jesus and his time on earth. If you recall also, um, Mark is a very distinctive Gospel. It was uh, based on the reminiscences and the memories of Peter, uh, a fisherman, a very simple man, uneducated, illiterate, and the Gospel reflects that. It is the simplest language in the Bible. It is very direct. Peter was a man of action, not a, a thinker, and so he records what he saw. I saw Jesus do this, and then he did this, and then he said this. So it's a very vivid and immediate experience of who Jesus is. It's a great place, actually, to get the, the basics of Jesus' ministry. And we saw that Jesus basically revealed himself. He began by teaching. He then started healing people using God's power to calm storms, perform miracles. He began to train his disciples, began to teach them. After he had gathered them and formed them into a group, he began to teach them to minister in his name and start to send them out into the world. He actually was beginning the Jesus movement, the movement that would, uh, after his death, create the church and is the reason that we're sitting here right now. This is slightly different. This is when Jesus begins to be noticed by the world that he's in. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus. So Jerusalem was the religious and political and power center of Israel. These were the power elite of Israel. And Jesus, as you recall, was up in the north around the Sea of Galilee. That's where he recruited his disciples. That's where he began his ministry. And so they've trekked up to the north of Israel to see who this person is who's been creating such a fuss. Because as you recall, ordinary people, peasants, were leaving their fields, leaving their villages, and they were going out into the wilderness 
to find Jesus and listen to him talk and teach. His name would have been on everybody's lips. And so now the leaders of the country want to see what he's all about. But they don't want to come and listen and learn. They came from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? They're looking for problems. They're not here to learn. They're not here to receive wisdom from Christ. They see an upstart who's attracting attention, who's attracting a following, and they're there to condemn, to quash, to get rid of him, to solve him as a problem. This is not a friendly meeting. The first thing they do is point out its problems, not a good way to start a relationship. And then, and this is unusual, in Mark, remember this is Peter talking, Peter gives us an aside, gives us a little primer on the law that they represent, and actually gives us a little teaching. And the fact that he does that, he doesn't do this anywhere else, shows that this was important. In fact, this confrontation is pivotal to understanding who Jesus is. This is really the core of how Jesus challenged the world. So notice it's in brackets. This is a little aside, a primer on the law of Israel. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So what uh, is being described here is what is known as halalkic law, halal law. This was a body of oral law, a tradition that had grown up around the laws we find in the Bible. And uh, it really is a way of um, creating a, a buffer around the laws of the Bible. Uh, halalkic literally means fence. And so the, the idea was to protect you from getting even close to breaking of the law of God, you would have a multitude of smaller laws or traditions that would keep you away from breaking a law. The logic being that if you're really devoted to God, you'd go the extra mile and do more than he asked to make sure there was no danger of not living up to God's law. By the way, uh, a subset of this, of halakhic law, is kosher law. Literally, kosher means the law of pots and pans. And the fact that, uh, you know, Mark here talks about the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles, that's probably what he's referring to here. The kosher laws on how you deal with food and how you cook food and what you're not meant to do. But this is part of this broader body of oral tradition. And in fact, it's still alive. When I first came to New York, um, I was an intern, and interns get sent on hospital visits, and so I went to visit somebody in a hospital uh, when I first came to New York. And I got into this elevator, and this elevator stopped at every floor, all the way up. It drove me crazy. 
Well, it turns out that it was an elevator set up for Orthodox Jews so they didn't have to press the button for their floor. They would just get in and would visit every floor very, very slowly so that they didn't have to work on the Sabbath. That's the kind of idea you get with all these laws. They are designed to protect people from getting even close to breaking God's law. So what's the problem? And notice, by the way, Mark goes out of his way to spell this out. This is what the Pharisees were bringing to Jesus. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What does Jesus have a problem with here? After all, he said he didn't come uh, to break the law, but to fulfill the law, that every jot and tittle of the law would stand forever. He was not a lawbreaker. So what is he talking about here? Well, what has happened is that the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel, had turned what was originally a gift, the law that God gave to uh, Israel on Mount Sinai, they had turned this majestic gift into this fussy little set of rules about pots and pans. They had turned the God who created all things, who created heaven and earth, into a God of pots and pans into mundanity, no majesty, forgetting everything that God came to achieve. Why did God give the law in the first place? If you recall, God saves Israel by bringing them out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of bondage, leading them to Mount Sinai, where he gives the Ten Commandments. And those commandments turn a rabble a bunch of slaves, they've been slaves for generations, they don't know how to rule themselves, how to organize themselves, how to live together. The law that God gives turns them from slaves into a free people who can run their own affairs and order their own lives and relate to each other. And famously, God gives the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments showing the Israelites how to relate to God and how to relate to each other. When Jesus was asked to summarize the law, he said, it really can be summed up in two ideas. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So first, have the right relationship with God. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So that was the gift. The law showed Israel how to relate to their God, their creator, and how to relate to each other. And that changed them from slaves, a rabble, into a people who could live orderly lives together. They worship me in vain, their teachings are merely human rules. The law had been changed from the commandments that were meant to order the relationship with God and with each other into a set of human rules 
that go down to how you deal with pots and pans, how you wash your hands, all the mundane and fussy details of human life, as if a relationship with God is all about what you do in your kitchen. It's completely missing the point. What is the purpose of the law? What I've said, the idea is relationship with God and with each other, but you can be more specific than that. Theologians have come up with three basic principles that guide our understanding of the law. The first is that it constrains the mistreatment that we, we have of each other, the evil that we do to each other, the greed, the way we mistreat each other. Love your neighbor as yourself is another way of saying, don't mistreat your neighbor. And if you read the commandments, don't kill. If you start killing each other, your community is not going to last long. Don't be chasing after each other's spouses. Don't commit adultery, because that'll explode your families, and your children are not going to turn out right. Don't covet other people's things. Don't steal from them. Basic, simple principles. And if those urges, those desires, and we're all filled with urges and desires, if those are restrained, your communities, your towns and villages will flourish. Your lives will flourish. Your families, your children will flourish. Now, it's, it's easy to skip over that, but if you've ever traveled around the world and you've been to a place where this does not occur, you realize what a gift this is. If you've been to a country which is ruled not by law, but by a power, or by corruption, or by the gun, or by violence. A few years ago, I was in the Dominican Republic, and um, I was talking to some expats there. They were running businesses, you know, scuba diving and sailing and paragliding, all these different businesses they were running. But they all lived in these terrible apartments you know, ratty little things, and on the hillside there were all these beautiful villas. They weren't that expensive. And I asked them, why don't you live like that? You know, you're making all this money. Why don't you buy a plot of land and build a house? Well, they all said, I, I heard this from several people, the trouble is if you buy some land and you build a house, and it doesn't even have to be particularly fancy, all is well and good until somebody shows up and says they're the brother of the police chief, and it turns out the paperwork on the transfer of that property was not quite right. And until it's sorted out, you have to leave. And the brother of the police chief or the mayor or the local power moves in and basically just takes your stuff. And what are you going to do? This happens all around the world. The powerful take from the poor, take from the powerless, because there's no rule of law. You know, one of the ministries that we support is New City Kids in Jersey City, dealing with kids from uh, oftentimes broken families or certainly poor and powerless families. And one of the things that I learned there from Trevor Rubing, who founded that ministry, is that the poor, people who are poor, people who are disadvantaged, they don't want handouts. They don't want charity. What they mainly want is justice. They want to be treated justly. They're mistreated by the legal system, by social services, they're ripped off by landlords, they're ripped off by people in their neighborhood, they're ripped off sometimes even by the police. They want justice, they want the rule of law, they want it to be treated equally with the powerful. So law 
justice, equal treatment under the law, is a powerful principle. That was God's gift. Think of it. This is 4,000 years ago, and God is reaching into the world, a world filled with murder and chaos, a world filled with the powerful preying on the powerless, and he's creating a just society, a society ruled by law where everyone is equal under the law. That was his gift to Israel and to the world. But the law doesn't just do that. It doesn't just restrain. The law shows us who God is. He shows us that he is a God of justice, that he cares for the poor, the powerless, the widow, the hungry, the sick. The law shows us the moral character, the nature of God's character. And that's why it's valuable to look at it and study it. And to the extent that we internalize it, our characters become more like his. But perhaps the most powerful thing that the Lord does is to show us that we cannot live up to the law. All of us inside are filled with chaos, disorderly desires, conflicting agendas, things that we want but can't have. Inside, there is turmoil. And very few of us, in fact, the Bible says, none of us can live up to the standard of God's perfect law. And so the law drives us to God to save us, drives us to Jesus. St. Augustine said this, the law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. This, by the way, I think is the essence of this passage. This is the teaching of this passage. Remember, this is a confrontation between the teachers of the law and Jesus. The law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. The law is a mirror. It's a mirror to our souls, it's a mirror to our lives. And when we recognize that we are not perfect, that we don't live up to God's standards, we realize that we cannot save ourselves. We realize we need a savior. We need not law, not a just God who is going to um, try us under law, but we need grace. We need a way out. We need an alternative to the law. And it pushes us to Jesus. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. So remember, God's law is a gift. It provides justice in a broken, violent world. It reveals who he is, and it points us to Christ. But that is not what it had become in Israel. In Israel, the teachers of the law, rather than pointing to God and the relationship with him, and especially ignoring and confronting Christ, were seeking to avoid dealing 
with God. We're seeking a way to live where they didn't have to have this relationship with the Savior. There's a wonderful book uh, called Wise Blood with Flannery O'Connor, by Flannery O'Connor. She's a Christian writer, and she knew, knows, and knew more about this than most people. And there's a, one of the characters in our book is a young boy. And he goes to church, and he does the right thing, apparently, on the surface. But underneath, he has a dark soul, and he does terrible things to people. And there's this line. The boy is hearing somebody talk about God in church. And then this. The boy didn't need to hear it. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Instead of the law pointing this boy towards Jesus and towards God, he believed that the way he could avoid having to deal with God at all was just to do the right thing. Appear on the surface to be a good person. To appear to be a good, God-fearing person obeying all the laws, living an apparently righteous life, not in order to please God, not in order to try to be like God or like Christ, not in order to recognize the grace in Jesus, but as a way of completely avoiding dealing with God at all. And that's what these laws are all about. You can think of it as a sort of religious technology or magic. Instead of God as a subject, a person that you're in relationship with, you treat God, if you believe in him at all, as an object, as a force, as a power. And you use these tricks, these mechanisms, these rituals, these laws, the way you would use technology or magic. Say the right word, press the right button, do the right thing, and the force will be with you. It's treating God not as a person, as a subject, it's treating him as an object to be manipulated. Show me the buttons to press, the things to wear, show me how to do the right thing in my kitchen, and God will love me, or this force will love me, this thing, whatever God is, will take care of me. But that's not Christianity. That's not why Jesus came. There are essentially three ways of dealing with God. You can be an atheist, and you can just deny that he exists. You can deny the objective reality of God. Nobody's there. Nobody is watching. Everything is an accident. Live as you please. Do as you will. No consequences as long as you can get away with it. The other way, very few people, by the way, I think, can truly be atheistic in this world. The other way is a sort of false religion. Yes, God is objectively true in some sense, but let's manage him. Let's find out what we can do to pay him off so that we can do our own thing. Use this religious technology. Do the right rituals, say the right words, read the right things, and God will be happy, or whatever this objective uh, reality of God is. But there's a third way, and that is Christianity. That's what Jesus came. 
God is not just objectively real. He's also subjectively real and present. Subjectively means personal. You do not have a relationship with somebody that you love by bribing them and paying them off. That's not a real relationship. A real relationship requires learning about the other, learning what pleases them, trying to please them, living in a way that makes them happy, treating God not as an object like a hurricane that you just have to deal with and manage, but as a person you can have a real relationship, somebody that you can encounter. That's what Jesus came. And you see all these other laws, turning God into a God of pots and pans, completely ignore that connection, that direct relationship. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help your father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Not just using the law to avoid God, but changing the meaning of the law so that you avoid even doing the basics for God. This... Um, this word, Corbin, resonates with me because early in my Christian career, this was probably, I'd been a Christian about two years, um, I was at uh, Redeemer in Manhattan, and we had this staff meeting, and this note showed up in the offering basket and was passed on to the leaders of the church. And it was uh, a guy who called himself a Christian, and he was offering a sailboat trip to the Caribbean. Wow. And I remember the meeting. It was passed around. Everybody was like, oh, this is amazing. What a great church we have. We get sailboats, tithes. Aren't we wonderful? This is fabulous. Nobody did anything about it. It was just too fantastical. But, you know, I was a sailor. I knew what a sailboat in the Caribbean looked like. It was a real thing. And so I was the only one who called him up. And he actually gave that week to me. There was a one secretary of the church who also went. And his sailboat was called Corman, devoted to God. And he had started off in Florida. He'd started off in a church. He moved up to New York as a sailing instructor. And he had this wild idea about sailing around the world in this tiny little boat. He didn't have much money. Until one of his students, this was at the... Uh, the uh, North Cove Marina in Manhattan, one of his students turned out to be a bond trader. He was actually the first person to use computers to trade bonds, and he had made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And he heard this dream about sailing around the world in this little boat, and he said, you know, how about I buy you a boat, a mere three, four hundred thousand dollars, by the way, you sail around the world, and then if I or my family want to come sail in some nice parts of the world, we'll just show up. But the rest of the time, the boat will be yours. You just let us sail with you when you come to some beautiful spots. And that's what he did. He ended up, this, this rich man ended up buying him a plane as well so he could fly between the islands. Ended up buying him a huge schooner, which he refurbished in Connecticut. 
And the last time I saw him, he had completely given up on the church. It, it turned out that he was trying to buy God's favor with Corbin. He felt a little guilty about getting a boat for free. And over the course of several years, he drifted away from the church and from Christ. He still sailed his boat Corbin, but now he flew around the world taking care of rich people. And every time I read this passage, I think of him. He thought he was devoting himself to God and this gift to God, but instead, it was just a payment to the church. It was an attempt to give something to the church to assuage his guilt, assuage his guilt for this lifestyle that just dropped on him. What is the essence of the gospel? What is it that Jesus came in to the world to show us? What is the good news? Well, probably the simplest and shortest way you can say it is Jesus saves. That's what he does. That's who he is. What does he save us from? He saves us from death and darkness, from sin and evil, from suffering and pain. Saves us from everything, including ourselves. That's why the Lord points to him. We can't do it by ourselves. And how does he do that? How does he save us? He becomes a human being, becomes one of us, becomes you and me, and he takes that humanity, all the corruption, all the ugliness, all the pain that humanity contains, and he takes it to the cross and he puts it to death. That's what he does. That's the good news. That's what it means that Jesus saves. But what have these teachers turned God into? A matter of pots and pans. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Nullify the word of God. That means to negate to do the opposite, to make irrelevant. The law points us on the road to God. But these teachers had turned the law into an end in itself. Do the right thing, and you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to think about God and your relationship with him. But the law, and this is important, although it's a gift, Although the gift comes from God, the law is fundamentally negative. It is dead. Think of the commandments. Thou shalt not. The law says what not to do. Where are the landmines in life? What to avoid? The law says what you shouldn't do in your life to thrive. But it doesn't tell you how to live. It doesn't tell you who to love. It doesn't tell you what house to live in, what job to take, how to dress. It doesn't tell you really anything about how to live. For that, you need to thrive in your relationship with God, the source of life, the one who can be a counselor, the one who can come alongside you, the one who can lead you into fullness of life. Looking to the law for that is a complete dead end. It is a nullification of the gospel. 
because it nullifies the Word of God, which the Bible tells us is actually Jesus, by saying you don't need him. I saw, uh, and this is my last illustration, but it really affected me. Last week was miserable because of this. There's a series on Netflix. It's a British series called Black Mirror. I don't know if you've seen any of the episodes. They are so dark. They are so dark. It's all about how bad technology can be and what could happen. And I can only watch like one a week or a month because they're just so horrible. So the one that affected me, and it really affected me, there's this, there's this couple and they're in love and the wife has an accident and she's in a coma and she's still in there but she's in a coma and so this technologist comes to the, uh, the husband and says she's trapped in her brain in that dead body it's not dead but it's a coma we now have the technology to transfer her consciousness into your brain because you don't use most of your brain so we'll just put her in there and she'll be able to experience everything you experience, see everything you see, taste. She'll be right there. She'll be able to hug your son again. It'll be wonderful. And the, and the husband's like, wow, that's amazing. So, of course, they do it. And there they are. She's in his head. And at first, it's all wonderful. She hugs the child, and they're celebrating their love for each other. But it doesn't last long. Why did you eat that? Why did you look at that girl? Why don't you do this for me? I'm bored. Why don't you change the channel? I'd rather listen to other music. And they start bickering. And of course, it's in the head. There's no escape. They're locked into this bickering match. And it is horrible. And in fact, to me, it's a, it is genuinely a horror. But there's worse. Eventually, he can't bear it. And he turns to another woman. And he wants a relationship with her, but of course, this nag is in his head and she doesn't like the other woman at all. So he goes to the technologist, what can I do? Well, we now can transfer consciousnesses. Your child loves this teddy bear. We'll transfer your wife's consciousness into this teddy bear. And then the child will be able to hug the teddy bear. And so that's what they do. And the, the, the series and the show ends with her inside this teddy bear. And all she can do is see and feel, can't speak. And of course, her son gets bored of the teddy bear and throws it away. And she's still in there. <laughs> so what's that got to do with the law of God? <laughs> well, one of the reasons that people are afraid of becoming a Christian, are afraid of God, is this idea that God is a God of rules, a God of law, a God who's there like a school principal, or a parent tapping his foot, trying to make you do the right thing. And if you think that it's bad for a spouse to be in your head with you, think of the power of God to be with you. God creates us. God sustains everything that is heaven and earth. God sustains every one of you and is fully present to you. Every moment, every second, every part of you from the beginning to the end. If God wanted to, he could control every aspect of your life. Talk about being a nag 
or a backseat driver or a pain in your head. God is present to every part of who we are. I mean, it's, when you think about it, it is terrifying. And yet, as I was thinking, this, by the way, is how I climbed off the ledge by thinking about this to get away from that show. God is fully present to me in a much more complete way than that transferred consciousness was. And yet, his presence is a delight. Why is that? Because there is a divine courtesy. God does not intrude. God never forces himself on us. He completely could. could completely take over our minds and our lives, completely control everything. But rather, there is this relationship of love, not a relationship of control, a relationship of courtesy, a relationship that looks for my best and your best. Jesus said, he's quoting from Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break, he's talking about God, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. God is so gentle, completely present, but so gentle that he wouldn't break a bruised reed. You know, we sang about his yoke. That's a quote from Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. God is a place of rest, not a nag, not a set of rules, not a 10-point plan, not a to-do list. God is where we can rest, where our minds and our bodies and our souls can rest. And that is why he's not an intrusion. He doesn't care what you do with your pots and pans. He doesn't care what you do or don't do. He only cares about you. You are the person that he made, and he loves you. And all he wants is to spend time with you. Completely, that's it. Nothing else. And that's what Jesus came to reveal. Don't get hung up on behavior, what you've done or not done. Trust him, follow him, learn from him, be with him. That is the essence of the gospel. Let's pray.